Welcome to the Diversity Sauce Podcast from KidMath, the Kids Inclusive and Diverse Media Action Project. We're your hosts, Kabir Seth and Amy Kraft. Diversity Sauce, don't dribble a little on at the end. Bake it into your children's digital media from the beginning. All right, welcome back, everyone. Amy, we took one extra week off, didn't we, between podcasts? It's possible we missed a podcast. Possible, possible. Will never happen again. (laughs) (laughs) Don't make promises. That's right. Um, But it is is great to be back. Um, New York is looking a little bit springier and a little bit warmer, although it still keeps giving us a little bit of rain. Um, But we have a great show. We have a couple articles that we want to talk about, focus on books, the importance of diversity in books and we have a fantastic fantastic guest i know i I always say that but we had a great interview coming up with lindsay buller malieko she is the director of education and public engagement for the new victory theater here in new york and you definitely want to stick around for that um i'm just so excited for i feel like i need to apologize for how gushy i was on that interview because you are not going to believe all the stuff the new victory theater is doing yeah it's it's absolutely incredible they are a case study in what it means to to have a community theater it's just incredible um but first let's start with a couple articles um one was in the newsletter last week. Um, It's from Glamour magazine and it's called an exclusive first look at the girls who code books, the babysitters club for the internet age. It's by Shay Mounds. And this, um, this article actually talks about uh, Reshma Sojani. She has written a couple new books um, that are specifically revolve around girls who code. And I have been a fan of Reshma Sojani Ever since she ran for uh, in the Democratic primary, I guess that must have been, I guess, six years ago, seven years ago. I, I worked on her campaign. And so this is an open invitation, Rasmus Shaljani. You are welcome anytime on the Diversity Sauce podcast. But the, the books that she's written, the first one is called The Friendship Code. And it talks about Lucy. It's actually a, it's, it sounds like it's a middle grade novel. Um, and... She joins a coding club at school so she can help build an app that will help out her favorite uncle who has cancer. Um, it, this was great. I, I think, um, did you, I, I read The Babysitter's Club when I, when I was little. Did you? Uh, yeah, you're a little bit younger than uh, I am. Okay. <laughs> I read like Sweet Valley High. <laughs> oh, okay, I know that one too. I, know that I, one. Would have, I would have totally read The Babysitter's Club, though I've since read a few mm-hmm. um, because my daughter was reading them. And then I've read the graphic novel versions oh, of wow. them. I did not um, know the graphic novels. Yeah, Raina Telgemeier does the graphic novel versions which is great um but yeah no but the the appeal is totally timeless right Mm -hmm. you've got like you know either even the author of this article talks about like when you're watching uh sex in the city you kind of like identify with which character you are (laughs) with like girls and their babysitters club and now the hope is with this girls who code by sort of like setting it in a scene like in a context Mm -hmm. of something like the babysitters club you can be like i identify with that character exactly and i think what's really interesting here is by sort of like attaching it 
different storylines, which other people are trying to do to varying success of attaching girls and coding to story, narrative, context, um, because they say that, like, you know, girls need to understand the importance of it. Like they're not, um, again, this is like a gross generalization, but they're not right to just sit down and tinker all the time, but just sort of like, what, what can we do with this? And right. sort of, I, I think that's where narrative can really help, especially because like there's some statistics cited in here about like how girls just drop off the mm-hmm. map Mm-hmm. in terms of interest. So it says like research shows that 66% of girls between the ages of six and 12 say they're interested in computer science. And then once they're adolescents, it's 32% and then 4% of college freshmen. So something's going wrong um, when yeah. we're, the interest just gets stripped away. Um, and so I think books like this are really geared towards like, how could we maintain that 66%? That right. would be amazing. Right. For sure. Yeah. I was, I was blown away by the 4% of college freshmen. Um, that's incredible. And Although when we were talking to Maria Chloe a couple of weeks ago from Harvey Mudd, I feel yeah. like we saw some of that too of like, how do you get um, young women of that level right. to stay with it, like stay the course and be interested? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I think um, this it, it was great to see. And, and obviously, you know, uh, Girls Who Code has been, um, has been really great um, out in the field uh, with – it says they've reached 40,000 girls in, in 50 states. And so it's, it's really great to see this expanding and, um, and building out, um, not just in sort of the, the classrooms that they, they do this work in, but also now with, the, with these books. I think the, the, the thing, like you said, being able to put it in that right context, you know, besides Lucy, there's these three other girls and, you know, and they have distinct personalities, right? The fashion girl, the sporty girl, the theater kid. Um, I think that's great. I think you know, mm. it, it, it could really be something. So, I'm, I'm Yeah, and I w- I've been thinking about this a lot this week, too. Um, I had a great Girls Who Code moment this week. Cause, mm-hmm. So I teach a coding club every week. It's an after-school club for second graders through fourth graders. Mm-hmm. Um, and the teacher I do the class with, she's like the real teacher who knows how to teach and I know how to code, <laughs> all that, you know, so I go in and I like do this thing. And she said to me when it was done, she's like, I don't know if you noticed this, but you had a swarm of girls around you. Like she said, like she would look over and there would be like six girls like surrounding me, holding their laptops, showing me things and asking me questions. And as I reflect, I'm like, it's like, oh yeah, that, that kind of was true. And I think it's like the mission here and also sort of like why I do that club is to like see girls and women coding right like so I'm really happy to go in there and say like I know how to do this I can show you how to do this here's how it's fun and I'll show them like examples from my work too and it's like and here's how I do it for a job yeah. um not that I code for a job but um <laughs> but I worked with coders <laughs> right right no that's, you're you're totally spot on that um they need to see that um, and I think in Reshma's uh, Girls Who Code book, uh, Learn to Code and Change the World, I think one of the things that's great in here is like showing women throughout history, like um, who have been important in sort of like the the march th- through computer science history ha- is filled with women. Yeah. Uh, 
so it's it's great for girls to have that context. Yeah, for sure. Um, the other article was from the Chicago Tribune, which also talked about um, diversity in books. It's called 12-Year-Old Puts Color Culture on Kids' Reading List with Hashtag 1,000 Black Girl Books. It's by, the article's by Heidi Stevens. And I actually went to high school with Heidi Stevens. Oh, this is wow. a great column. Like everyone should check out yes. Heidi's column. It's called Balancing Act. And she very often deals with topics that are right in line with our podcast. Nice. That is great. And you actually tracked down this um, this article, didn't you, Amy? Well, you know, it's one of those things. So I was in a meeting earlier today where we got on the topic of inspiring kids and someone mentioned Marley Diaz. And then I came home and on Facebook, I saw Heidi had put up this link about Marley Diaz. And I was like, this is a sign <laughs> I need to think about this. And it's just such a great story. The Thousand Black Girl Books, um, she was tired of reading books, as she says, about boys and their dogs, like white boys and their dogs were the books that she was reading. And so she hoped to collect and donate children's books that feature black girls as protagonists. And she wanted to collect a thousand. And I guess as of this writing, she's up to 9,500, wow. which is awesome. Yeah. And I think Heidi's also writing about her here because she's going to be in Chicago actually speaking at a summit, the Social Innovation Summit, because that's what 12-year-olds do. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just so interesting. Like these, these kids, and this was part of the conversation I was having earlier today, we keep hearing about more and more cases. This is the beauty of the internet too, where young children just start off on a, a little idea, but because of social media mm -hmm. and their and also their drive and their perseverance, they help change the world yeah. and bring attention to things like um, having protagonists that aren't just boys and dogs. Um, and it's just it's very exciting because I think it lends a lot of hope in the world yep. to see, uh, you know, like I've seen stories about like kids collecting products for women's shelters and, you know, like rebuilding things in their community, things like that. And I think that as kids see these stories, it's really inspirational because it's like, well, you know, here's a 12 year old. She did this. What can I do that's impactful to my community? So it's just, everything yeah, is amazing. It's fantastic. I, I think, you know, she has a couple quotes in there, and you just see that there's that cynicism is it doesn't exist, and that's so that's where it comes from from a kid. It's just that belief that this is important to me. I'm going to make this happen, and the power of sort of social media and and being able to reach so many people um, so quickly with you know very little effort and to make something go viral is just just awesome. I mean, and you can tell she cares so much about this. She's, you know, she talks about if I meet someone who's Native American and I don't know anything about indigenous people in New Jersey, then she sort of like pauses and she says, which I kind of don't, which is not really good. And, mm -hmm. you know, she's, I can learn more and more about their lives and that makes me a more open person, a more accepting person. And I'm showing others I can be kind. I mean, that's just awesome, right? Like, it's everything that you would want from from any child and um, what she's done to, to sort of raise this, this awareness. And it's just really amazing. Um, 
I think what's interesting, too, is she was saying that she was getting books from big publishing companies like Penguin and Simon & Schuster and Scholastic. Um, But then I think as people heard about it, more independent um, publishers and creators were sending her stuff. And I think that's where, like, you can really amplify Mm -hmm. the work that's being done is, like, by all the indies. Um, You know, I think we've seen it in a lot of different contexts, but where there aren't opportunities for some creators, creators are making their own opportunities. Yeah. So it's great that a 12-year-old is helping give them a platform. Right, right, for sure. Um, Yeah, both these articles are awesome. I think one other thing that in in this article, they talked about um, Madam C.J. Walker, um, who I had never heard of, was one of the first black female millionaires. Um, So it sort of um, made me think that that story sounds like it needs to be told. It's, uh, I know now, like, yeah, even reading some of her quotes, it's like, yeah. now I want to go research that. Yeah, exactly. It's history that shouldn't be forgotten. It's pretty awesome. So, so inspiring. Yeah, exactly. Both of these articles were just, were, were really great. Um, so with that, we are going to uh, turn it over to our interview with Lindsay Buller Malieko from the New Victory Theater. So stay tuned for that. All right, folks, we're really excited to welcome Lindsay buller Malieko from the New Victory Theater. She's the Director of Education and Public Engagement. Lindsay, thank you so much for, for coming on. I am so happy to join you. <laughs> so we, the reason we wanted to have you on was for a variety of reasons, but um, I guess what we really like to start with is sort of the, the goal, when you visit the website, the New Victory Theater website, it says that their New Victory philosophy is the commitment to break down barriers, be they cultural or economic, and provide access for students, teachers, kids, families, and communities of New York City. So can you give us a little bit of background on the theater, the, the types of shows that you guys do, and, and what that commitment um, sort of um, translates to in terms of, of the shows that you have? Yeah, you know, um, it's a story that I love to tell, actually. Uh, back in like, the early 90s, when 42nd Street was not known for being the friendliest, <laughs> definitely not family-friendly, um, <laughs> as a street. <laughs> um, and there were these amazing historic theaters on the block um, that no one knew what to do with. And so this organization was started... Um, and it basically was started s- sort of to be a landlord to those theaters and to try to find tenants for them. And, and absolutely no one was interested because no one wanted to go on 42nd Street. Um, and so the, the president, um, a woman named Cora Khan, basically started trying to look around New York City and was like, OK, well, maybe we'll just run one of these theaters ourselves. We'll just we'll just open one. Right. Um, and try to figure out what we can do. And what she realized as she looked around sort of the New York City landscape was that there was a ton of theaters that were Broadway theaters and were doing amazing, spectacular shows, and they were serving almost exclusively a tourist um, audience. And that no one uh, had created a theater for kids and families that was actually meant for New Yorkers. And all the things that that meant, um, that it was going to be a a theater that was going to be absolutely committed to being accessible to all New York City kids and families, that it was going to showcase shows from all around the world, 
that it was going to have shows for kids. You know, we do shows for kids all the way down to sort of six months, wow. uh, which wow. you can't even believe that there is theater for kids that right. are six months, but there is, and it's actually great. It's very like performance arty. Mm-hmm. Um, all the way to shows that were created for adult audiences, but we just think are really excited, um, exciting to show to New York um, teens. Um, and basically what we do is uh, we go all around the world and we look for pieces of theater or opera or circus or puppetry that are amazing and sophisticated and inventive And then we bring them back to New York for New York City kids and families. Um, I think that's a really, like, key thing that, like, I've noticed as one of your theater goers is how global it is. Like, one of my favorite things that we saw there was an Australian version of Peter Pan that was so active and energetic. And there were trampolines. And, like, it was just (laughs) this, like, incredible thing. And every time I look at, like, sort of what the upcoming season has, it's like you could, like, imagine pins going in all over the map, right? Yeah. And now it's fun to think about, you know, we have a staff that actually travels the world to look for those shows. So you can you can think about how many countries they visit in a year to try to find these amazing pieces that we can bring back. How Uh, does one get that job? job? (laughs) Well, she's been there. Mary Rose has been there for 17 years. So, okay, well deserved. Well deserved. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, one of the goals is really... um, is is really to make sure that the work that is on our stage is not simply in the the traditional narrative that theater has often sort of shown, um, and that it's it, hopefully it's reflective of the cultures and the people of New York City themselves. You know that we're just from everywhere, right. and yeah. that the work that we would like to be able to present back to New Yorkers is also from everywhere. Yeah. So it's also really just fun to get to meet the performers from absolutely everywhere around the world. Right. Right. And how long is like, how long is the season or how long are the performers? uh, How long does the show usually run at at the theater? Yeah, most of the times two to three weeks. Um, So they come in and out pretty quickly. Uh, and we, you know, we'll, we'll, a show will play and then the, there'll be a 5 PM Sunday performance and then we'll load the entire show out that night and Monday morning, you know, a show comes in from a totally different part of the world. Um, it happens really fast. Um, and we do somewhere around 15 shows a season, sometimes a few more. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot, it's a lot of shows that come in and huge diversity of what it is you can see across a season. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. And I have to say, like, again, back to the inventiveness of some of your shows, one of my favorite sort of moments that happens, it was like years ago when my daughter was younger, we came to see the little prince at your theater and it's so hard to describe how simple this was, but there was sort of just like a circle, like a big wooden circle with a scrim and like, shapes would push up from underneath it to sort of create this mountain effect. And she was just riveted, riveted, like just stuck in her seat, like just really watching this thing. And I was so excited. And then as it happened, a couple weeks later, we were going across the street to your theater to see Mary Poppins. And I thought, okay, so this is going to be good too. And it was, she was just kind of like, meh. (laughs) (laughs) 
was like all like the you know like the super expensive like yeah. Disney on Broadway sets were just like oh, that's all right but like just the, like just the artistry of some of the things that we've seen at your shows I think you know I think again like this feeling of like you've curated it from around the world to find the best of the best yeah well and it, it it's an interesting um an interesting challenge as well because you think of you know all these shows that we're trying to find from around the world but they also have to either be performed in English or they have to be non-language based Um, but I think that what that also pushes the us to are pieces of theater or pieces of performance that are really visually compelling Mm -hmm. um, or that feel absolutely universal um, that language perhaps isn't the dominant way that the story is being told that it's being told visually and orally and you know that that it's it's trying to connect in a different kind of storytelling um, tradition yeah. So what have, know, I, uh, what have some been some of your favorites? You said there you guys do 15 shows a year practically. <laughs> what have been yeah. some of your favorites? Um, I have a long list. I huh. sort of laugh that I I'm a now a little I'm a little bit like your daughter Amy. I'm I'm somewhat spoiled for traditional theater. Um, <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I know this show was made for a six-year-old, but it's also one of my favorites. <laughs> um, we had a show come this past season called Chato Desh, mm-hmm. uh, which the, is a, a very famous choreographer named Akram Khan. It was um, He created a show called Desh, and then he worked with a director to help make his first sort of family-friendly piece. And so this piece was a, it was a modern dance piece um, that was also using this beautiful, beautiful um, drawn uh, sort of um, projection that he interacted with as a, as a dancer, that the dancers interacted with. And it was telling the story of a, of a Bangladeshi um, immigrant youth um, and trying to navigate between sort of like entering a Western culture and then his sort of family expectation and the family folklore that came with him. Um, and the piece for me, I mean, it was resonant for me partly because I have kids that that bounce back and forth between having, uh, you know, half of their extended family in India mm-hmm. and half of their extended family in Seattle, you know, a very mm-hmm. westernized, you know, long time right. Um, Americans. And um, so the the piece hit me when I think about my own kids sort of trying to navigate between multiple cultures. But the way that the piece also, I mean, it was just so beautiful that um, that it was also done all through this modern dance that was really accessible for kids. So I was watching it with these kid audiences and these family audiences, and you could hear the kids um, identify with the moments that the character was going through as well. You know, they're like, oh yeah, you know, that happens to me too, that my dad, um, who's from Bangladesh, you know, thinks that it's supposed to be like this, but he doesn't understand New York. He doesn't understand school. Um, and just watching the New Yorker kids that were in the audience, not only take it in as a piece of sort of dance and theater and, and beautiful dance and theater, but also, as their story that they were watching being told in this sort of, you know, sanctified space that right. often story is not a part of. Um, so that was just, I mean, that was such a cool experience to sit in the audience, not, not only as an audience member myself, but also to be surrounded by these New Yorker kids. I'm just mm-hmm. loving it. Um, 
There was also, there's a piece called White. There's this um, theater maker in Great Britain who basically creates mostly for two to five-year-olds. And and so he created a show that's all about trying to um, find or or, or deal with color and difference. Um, And it, but, but the show itself is so great and it takes place in this tent and uh, you know, the, the, the kids, uh, it, the color sort of seeps into this all white world and the characters in the show don't know how to deal with it. And so I went to it with my two-year-old, you know, and, and now, now he's four and he still talks about the characters in that show coming out. Oh, but wow. I also still talk about, you know, uh, those characters and, you know, <laughs> quote the show. So it's, it's been really fun to have yeah. my own kids come and see it, especially I've worked there forever. So it's been, it's been just fun. Um, I love the pieces that come through. That's incredible. It's great at the end of your show, too, that the kids get access to the performers usually, right? Is that part of every show? Yeah, we we do a lot of – we ask the performers to be generous with their time afterward. Um, and so they, most performers, unless there's some sort of reason that they can't, will come down into the lobby spaces afterwards and they will engage and interact with our audiences. Um, we also, we try as often as possible to do talkbacks where we're actually, you know, we're really helping and hoping that the kids themselves want, will ask questions, um, that are interesting to them, not just sort of like the parent, um, you know, point of view. Um, we actually, we do, we make a lot of decisions at the new victory based on trying to really honor the experience of the kids and to make sure that they have sort of access, um, and, and a point of view about seeing the work that is geared to them. Um, it's not just geared to their parents. Uh, so yeah, the performers almost always come out. They're just so generous with their with their time. Um, and they love to meet the audiences. It's fun for them as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's great. And, and awesome. yeah, it, was, it was fun. A couple of years ago, we realized um, we were doing all this work in the schools. So we have a, um, a school program where the kids can come for $2 a ticket. Wow. Um, and we've committed, that was the price in 1995 for a student, a New York City student to come. And it's still the price. Um, it's something that's actually really important to us. But we also go into their schools before they come and see a show. And we do these pre-show workshops that are trying to really um, give access to the kids to learn the art form or explore the themes before they come and see the, the piece in the theater. Um, and we were, we'd done it for long enough. We'd done it for a decade or so. And so we knew how impactful it was to work with these kids beforehand, before they came and see the show, because they already had such a connection to what they were going to see on the stage. And we started to ask ourselves, why weren't we doing this for our family audiences that were coming on the weekends? You know, why weren't, why weren't we creating these same opportunities to create connections and teach the art forms that they were about to see, um, to, to those audiences. And so about four years ago, we started bringing in um, teaching artists into the lobbies before each show uh, and creating these activities that hopefully are inviting the families to come beforehand. And if it's a show that's going to have juggling to, you know, uh, teach them juggling. And if it's a show that's dance to teach them a few of the dance moves that they're going to see or um, teach them more about the traditional, you know, Indian style of dance that they're going to go see um, just to, to create those same connective pieces for the family audiences. Um, and it's been it's been important for us because we really want to make sure that that 
any New Yorker who comes to the theater feels like they have a connection, even if they're a family that, you know, doesn't come to the theater very often, or perhaps the parents didn't go to the theater when they were kids, or they don't speak English at home, or, you know, the, the, the myriad of different kinds of New Yorkers there are, we just wanted to really make sure that we were creating a space that felt welcoming and accessible, and um, that we were helping to sort of knit together this, this connective tissue, this, this fabric that as they went to, you know, to watch this show, they already felt like a piece of the community. They already felt like they belonged um, in this space. So it's been, it's been really fun to continue to work and think about how do you make a theater space welcoming to absolutely anyone who walks in the doors. Yeah. And it seems like with those school groups here, like the, the super affordability of your just general ticket prices too, for where you guys are located, that seems impossible to me, but especially given that like, you know, I could walk, you know, a few doors down and spend $300 on a ticket, right. Um, or more, <laughs> um, where like, I, I think people think of theaters being just in New York city, especially as just being out of reach. Um, and then you do like these three packs. I just anecdotally know so many of my neighborhood parents who are like, Oh, these are my three shows for the season. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so do you find that too? Like, is it really like a, like, are your family audiences New York? Do you get some of the tourists in as well too? Or like, you know, I, I I love that your your focus of just serving the families of New York though. Yeah, I mean we we love it when um, visitors come when tourists come. It's uh, it's great when they find us. Um, mm. But I would say that a huge majority of our audience is is part of the metro area. So you know we we extend into Connecticut, New Jersey, but um, most of most of our audiences are from the five boroughs. That's awesome. And I think we also need to talk about the amazing accessibility services. Again, like I just can't believe like the layers upon layers of you getting people in your seats who wouldn't ordinarily be at the theater. So can you talk a little bit about those services? Yeah. Um, So we, for a long time, have had a really close relationship with um, uh, hands-on, which is a, an organization that helps connect the deaf and hard of hearing um, community. And so we have signed interpreted performances. We have long-term relationships with those audiences and really love them. A few years ago, we also did, um, uh, we started doing audio describing for visually impaired audiences. Um, but the, the piece that came in much much more important to us over the last five to seven years is our work um, with audiences who are on the autism spectrum. Um, We started working with an organization called Autism Friendly Spaces. Um, We had noticed already that um, a lot of of families who had kids on the autism spectrum were already finding us. Um, And often it was because we were, we were, we were, I I guess, doing a pretty good job of trying to make a welcoming space and, you know, like making a welcoming space for families goes a long way towards families who have kids who are differently abled as well. Um, But we, we realized that we weren't necessarily serving them uh, or we weren't, we didn't know enough. (laughs) Um, And so we went on sort of a quest to find out a lot more. We partnered with autism friendly spaces, whose goal is really to create 
um, much, much more awareness um, and uh, sort of openness in public spaces um, in, in, the, in, the, in the world. Um, and they trained all of our ushers. So our ushers are all young people who are all um, New York City kids between the ages of 16 and about 20, 21. Um, and they're part of a job training program. Um, and so we did a huge amount of training for our ushers, many of whom were already, you know, like schools have kids on the autism spectrum all over the place. The numbers of kids on the autism spectrum now are, 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 are so big. Um, and so they were, the, the ushers who work for us were already kind of used to um, uh, melded classrooms. Um, and so they were really excited to get actually trained in like, what does it mean to create an, a welcoming space and what is, um, you know, sensory friendly and what are the things that you can do to make sure that a kid on the autism spectrum or an adult on the autism spectrum uh, can have an enjoyable, welcoming time at the theater. And so now we uh, we do a lot of work where we actually designate performances that are autism-friendly. Um, um, we work closely with that community to make sure that they know about them. And in those performances, we're, we're changing the sound levels. Um, we have uh, highly trained uh, experts uh, that are there. We have, you know, common corners and fidgets, and we're just really making the whole theater very specifically to help create um, structures and systems to support those audiences. But the other thing that it, we didn't expect, but has happened very um, strongly for us, is now that the front of house staff and the staff are so much more aware um, of kids on the autism spectrum, is that you know, now when one of our ushers, you know, there was an usher named Brendan and um, there was a performance a couple of weeks ago where you know, there was a kid who was on the autism spectrum. He was not at one of our specially designated performances. So he was at sort of a general audience performance. Mm -hmm. And he got, you know, a little freaked out by one of the sound cues. Um, but Brendan, this 17-year-old kid uh, who's our front of house staff, knew exactly what to do because he had spent now three years being trained around by the Autism Friendly Spaces performance people about ways that you can help make that um, less scary or you can help, um, you know, be really clear about what's happening first and then what's happening next. And so he went down as a 17-year-old and created this relationship with this kid and helped sort of under helped the kid understand what was about to happen next. And and that kind of work is one of the things that makes me the most excited um, about about how far we've come um, is that, yes, now we have performances that are specifically designated and we're doing a lot of work on those performances to make them as welcoming um, as possible. But it also means that we are much, much more welcoming all the time. We are much, much better right. ed educated about how to be welcoming you know, at, for every single performance. Um, and so I feel like it's, we're, it's, it's helping us not just talk the talk, but walk the walk of saying, we mean every New York city kid and family. And that means if you are on the autism spectrum, if you are hard of hearing, if you, you know, whatever that is, whoever you are, as you walk in our doors, we want to see you. And this is a theater that is excited to have you here. I think that really speaks to, you know, we talk about inclusion all the time, but there's sort of like the why of it, not just that people can see themselves reflected and people can learn about it. But what you're describing is like really like the end goal of mm -hmm. like, it just makes the experience better for everyone. Not like, it's just so, 
yeah. extraordinary. I mean, the like that idea of a community theater, that word community, I mean, that is like what you're reflecting back. It's like the it is truly everyone from the community is welcome here. This, this is just amazing. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. Um, I wish every town in the world had, had one of these. <laughs> it's so awesome. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it can be scary to begin with. I mean, I remember the first time that we did an autism-friendly performance, and we, you know, we the front of house staff was scared. They were like, "What if we don't do it right? What, mm-hmm. you know, what if what if we do something wrong and it makes a terrible experience for a kid? And what if we, what if we suck at this? What if we're bad at it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I do think that there's a fear factor in all of this, um, that it's hard to get past, you know, the, the, well, that would be nice, but we're definitely not experts. And so we can't do it because what if we do it wrong? Um, but to push past it and be like, yeah, we're probably going to do it wrong, but that's going to be the only way that we learn how to do it right. Did you have some bumps like that where it's like, okay, well now we know for next time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we definitely, I mean, especially when we first started, um, uh, trying to better meet the needs of the community of, of kids and families, um, with kids on the autism spectrum. And but before we were working really closely with a consultant, um, to help us sort of make some of these, uh, you know, things it's like, you know, we had, um, we had a show that was mostly nonverbal. And so we knew that it was going to be uh, a really, um, it was going to be a great show for kids that didn't necessarily uh, weren't in taking information very well um, verbally. And we already knew that that was going to be a good show, but it also had, you know, a whole bunch of balloons and a, and, a, and, and balloon popping, <laughs> which you know, <laughs> a terrible thing to spring on a kid um, on the autism spectrum. Um, so before we knew that, oh, the, the way to, you know, sort of handle that is to make sure that either you have a volunteer in the audience, if it's a, if it's a, if it's an audience that is really full of, of these families and kids that is identifying when something like that is going to happen, or perhaps, you know, ask the performers not to pop that balloon for that show. Um, or at least make sure that it is very clear in all of the literature that it's going to happen. Right, right. <laughs> So lots of learning curves on it. And we're still learning, you know, that there are, I'm so proud of the theater community, especially the theater community that's focused on kids and families that it seems like there's been a shift in the last three to four years where we've said that this is important. And it's not just important because we can apply for a grant or because it's a nice feel good story, but it's important because this is our community. These are our families. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, I really, I feel like at least in New York, there's, but across the nation as well, there's, there's been a shift where we've said, nope, it's important to do it. And it's because it makes it, a, we, it makes us a better theater. Um, not just because it's, it's a, you know, a feel good story. Yeah, no, that I think that's really, really well said. I think we've talked about it sort of when we're with our toolkit, right? We've, talked with developers and sort of people making children's products where they do have that fear of of screwing it up and like again like you said you have to sort of push through that and sort of be prepared that you are going to make mistakes but you know be open to to sort of that feedback and be open to to change because your end goal is is where you guys are right it's not just the autism 
um, performances that are better. It's now even the other performances that um, that are even better, which is awesome. So. Yeah, and we definitely, I mean, immediately within the first couple of years, we learned that, oh, having a calming corner uh, is a really great idea all the time, you know, not not just for a performance that is specifically trying to serve kids with autism um, or on the autism spectrum. It's like, oh, right, no, all kids, that's good for all kids. Right. Uh, and so much of the things that I think are we're sort of learning about as best practices are also just good for all kids and all families. Um, and if we can get closer and closer to that being the goal all the time, it, I think it makes it makes us better. Yeah, for sure. That's the goal. And so where can where can schools, uh, I guess is, is the best place to to learn more about the theater to to find tickets is, is the website the best place to to do all of those things? Yeah. Um, depending on when you're listening to this, the, we're about to, um, launch our new season. So right now the website looks a little, it looks beautiful, but slightly spare because it'll be, uh, within a week or so we will have all of the shows come that are for next season up there. Um, it also talks about, you know, it depends if you can search, there's a, you know, you can learn about our jobs for youth. You can learn about our accessibility programs. You can learn about our school programs, um, there's a lot of information that you can find. Yep, and that's newvictory.org, right? It is. Yeah. Any shows coming up that you can preview for us that we should look forward to? <laughs> oh, don't put me in this position, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, uh, well, I, well. Actually, so um, coming up that is announced so far are uh, the summer programs, which are called Victory Dance, um, and. That is a program we started a few years ago to meet two needs. Um, one is that there's a whole bunch of kids who are in city-funded like day camps um, and and schools that have n- no cultural. There's it's hard to find performing arts um, for them during the summertime, mm-hmm. and so we offer 100% free uh, tickets to uh, city-funded uh, summer camps that join us. Uh, and free workshops that go into their into their camps as well. Um, and then we offer a couple of performances of those dance performances to the public as well. Um, and those dance performances are filled with New York City-based choreographers. Um, and so there's two programs that are coming up this summer, uh, and they've got an amazing, amazing um, group of choreographers and dancers that are part of it, including, um, I don't know if you guys know Heidi Latsky, but she is a, a choreographer and dancer that specifically works with differently abled bodies and dancers. Um, and so they're one of the dance companies that's that's coming this summer. Um, and there's a really, there's a collaboration between a um, traditional Indian dancer with a, a one of the with a traditional ballet dancer that have created this beautiful piece. Wow. Um, so there's a lot of things that's coming that are coming this summer that are, Oh, and, um, uh, Bill Shannon, uh, who is a dancer who, um, uh, is also on crutches, but he's got these amazing, uh, I forget what they're called, the, uh, rocker bottom crutches. So mm-hmm. his is a one man dance piece. Um, but it is him and his specially, uh, created um, crutches that he uses um so there's a lot of stuff this summer that's going to be really fun to watch wow cool that is so awesome yeah i look forward to uh to checking that out and also the the new season so 
Lindsay Bullard. Notice I didn't give away any of those shows. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. We will be refreshing the website, I'm sure. But... Edge of our seats. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the brochure went to print today, so we're soon. soon. All right. Awesome. I feel like everything you guys are doing at the New Victory is like a case study for everything we talk about in our organization, from who you have behind the scenes to the shows that you're bringing in to the inclusion of your audience. It's just Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> for thank everything you so you're much. doing. It's just fantastic. Uh, it's a it's a pretty you know I'm I'm really proud to get to work for an organization like the New Victory Theater. It's a really amazing place to get to put time and talent. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was it's great to time. talk with you. This episode of Diversity Sauce is sponsored by the Joan Gans Cooney Center. Music is by Kamala Shankaram. Learn more about KidMap at joinkidmap.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at JoinKidMap. Thanks for listening.